Good morning. I um, was sitting and reflecting as Tim came up to offer the pastoral prayer, what a blessing it is that we are served as a church by so many faithful men who serve in the role of elders and, and deacons, and I am thankful that uh, I call them co-laborers. Um, we as a church are blessed, but we are blessed in so many other ways besides merely our elders and deacons. I look around this room and I am just in awe of the way that you are serving this body from preparing communion trays to serving in the nurseries to uh, caring for our children in VBS to even chaperoning youth trips. Um, so many of you are serving this body so faithfully, and I thank you all so much for the many ways in which you give of your, your time. Um, the call that the Lord places on our lives to, to in a sense, sacrifice, to, to serve his body. And there's a reminder that this text takes us to, as well, as we continue in John's gospel we are in chapter 12, and this morning we will look to verse 20 through the first portion of verse 36. As we prepare to go there, would you bow with me as we ask for the Lord's blessing? Father, we, we come now to your word, and we ask that you would give us hearts to submit to your word, to be shaped by your word, to be transformed. That is our prayer request, but it is a prayer request that must be answered through your life-giving spirit. And so I would ask this morning that you would not only anoint the reading and preaching of your word, but that you would anoint the ears that would hear, that we all might see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Dear friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the, serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered this voice, 
has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. When Anna was pregnant with our oldest child, we spent the the months preparing, anticipating, doing all the things that you do, getting car seats, putting cribs together. But in all of our talk, in all of our anticipation, we, we talked of some future event, some future date. Until all that changed. <laughs> Two weeks before her due date, Anna went for the regular checkup but all wasn't regular. She called me, I was at work that morning, and I remember the phone call. She, she said that the doctor told her that, that our son was breech. We were going to be back that afternoon for the doctor to attempt to turn him, and, and if he, something went wrong, there was a chance that we would be delivering, she, we, it's easy for me to say, she would be delivering that afternoon, and if not, be coming back the following week. Everything that we had anticipated as a future event shifted. And it was all now a very present tense reality. The text that I just read to you has a similar shift. All that uh, Jesus had been prepping the disciples for, all of the planning that had been uh, taking place over the previous uh, three years was now coming into a heightened sense of focus. And that shift that we see in this text came not in the form of a doctor's visit, but in the form of the visit of a group of Greeks. These Greeks were just known, uh, were likely what was known as God-fearers. They were there in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But as God-fearers, they... They were there to worship, but they hadn't gone all the way to be circumcised as converting to Jews. But yet, they wanted to see Jesus. They weren't there to get his celebrity autograph. They wanted a meeting with him. They, they wanted to talk to him about all of the events they had been witnessing. So they went to see Philip. And Philip went to see Andrew. And Philip and Andrew both went to see Jesus. But Jesus responded, not in the way that those Greeks might have hoped. His response was somewhat cryptic. Verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, the presence of the Greeks was was a sign. It was not a sign that Jesus was was, uh, caught unaware by. Um, He had 
He had prepared for this shift. He had prepared for their arrival and the movement that they would indicate. The Word of God had pointed to it throughout. But in their presence, there was a very real shift that was taking place. It was a shift in the focus of Jesus' ministry now to the reality of His sacrifice. His sacrifice on the cross. We'll come back to the Greeks. We'll come back to why they were uh, the content of this particular sign. But Jesus, as we read, doesn't acknowledge them at all in that moment. Instead, he turns to the disciples and begins to explain to them the hour of his glory. We've heard about the hour in John. You've heard us talk about the hour on multiple occasions as we've been making our way through John's gospel. But every time we've talked about the hour, we've talked about the future hour. The hour was not yet. And yet now... It has come. But it's the hour of glory. If you were there with the disciples and you would have heard Jesus speak of glory, what might you have thought? Finally, the parade. Finally, the victory lap. Because that's what we think about when we think of glory. We think high and lifted up, but in a very different manner than what Jesus is talking about. We think of lifted up, For the parade route. But not Jesus. He goes on to explain that the hour of His glory is the hour of His betrayal. Of His arrest. Of His crucifixion. Of His death. That is the hour which Jesus is most glorified and in which He brings the most glory to God. Because it is the hour that has been ordained by God from before the beginning of time. This hour is providential. Now the people there in that day understood all of that even less than we do. So Jesus explained. He explained his glory through a sacrificial death. He he explained it in in terms that spoke to his obedience. There's, There's glory in his obedience because the Father had sent him for this very purpose and Jesus was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father even to the point of death on a cross. There's this glory and humility as Philippians 2 would speak about. There was glory and, and fulfillment. Jesus had come for this mission. It was his primary purpose in taking on flesh. And Jesus executed his mission flawlessly. It was glorious because it was productive. Jesus describes this hour of glory using a harvest metaphor. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In Alabama, we're not known for our wheat crops. That's a Midwestern crop. Um, I wondered though, so I did a little research. If you plant one grain 
of wheat, the plant, I guess you would call it, that grows from that one grain produces eight or more heads. Each of those heads would produce 50 grains of wheat. So one grain of wheat would yield within that one plant 400 grains of wheat. But if you take it to the next generation and plant those seeds, you come up with 160,000. See the multiplication of the gospel. One acre of a wheat field would produce enough bread for a family of four for 10 years. It is an incredible uh, production of life, but for that life to occur, there must be a death. The grain had to fall to the ground and die, and if that is true of a grain of wheat, how much more must it be true of the Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus understood the shift that was taking place. He understood that death was necessary for justice to be upheld. You see, justice demanded the penalty for sin, and the penalty for sin is death. God so loved the world that He sent Jesus to to bear that penalty Himself. He took death upon Himself so that His beloved might live. His beloved are the elect from every nation, Jew and Greek alike, who would receive that life given to them through Jesus' sacrificial atoning death that They would receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus loved. And so He came and He gave of Himself for us. This is the hour of glory. This is the hour that the presence of these Greeks signified. It is a glory through sacrifice. And Jesus knew that if there would be fruit that would come out of His life... He must die. He speaks to all of that in the presence of His hour. But in this text, it speaks of Jesus' sacrifice, but it also points to ours. Mind you, Jesus' sacrifice was, was of one kind and ours is of another. But if we are to follow Him, we are to follow the way of the cross. A bit of a transition there from verse 24 to verses 25 and 26. Verse 24 speaks of Jesus' vicarious sacrificial death. 25 and 26, though, then begins to speak in terms of our sacrifice. And our sacrifice is not a sacrificial death. Only Jesus Only Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, could die a substitutionary death. No, verses 25 and 26 are speaking to a different type of death. It's not a physical death, but a death to self. It's a death to the kingdom of self. This is our sacrifice. Let me explain. 
Verse 25 says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Loving life, in verse 25, is speaking of of delighting in, in this worldly life more than delighting in God. And so to hate this life is to think less of this life relative to our thoughts about God and His glory. There's a a call to relative priorities, to relative affections, and it speaks in terms of absolutes in order to make the point clear. God loves this world. It is His creation, fallen though it may be, but we are to love this world, to love this life so much less than we love our God that the word would speak in terms of hating this life. The text is a challenge for you and I to live for the glory of God and His kingdom, and it speaks of it in such a way that it makes clear that this life of living for the glory of God and His kingdom is to be costly. What does it cost to follow Jesus? Well, one thing it costs control. Carrie Underwood famously sang, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) But I dare say there are probably a lot of backseat drivers in this room. (laughs) Amen? We might sing, Jesus, take the wheel, but we reach for that wheel at every turn. Wanting to grab control back because the thought of handing over control feels like death. To follow Jesus is to give him control of our relationships. Of our marriages, of our families. To follow Jesus is to give him control of our vocation. The decision making we bring to our vocations. It's to to hand over to Him the the control of our personal and family goals. It's to give Him control of our finances. Is that thought scary? Is that reality costly? Jesus speaks of it in terms of death, but in Christ, oh, it is a sweet death because that death brings abundant life. What else does it cost to follow Jesus? It costs our pride. It costs letting go of our carefully crafted images. To follow Jesus is to give him honest access in the midst of our sin struggles. To be honest with him and in the context of the body of Christ to find another and allow them the access to our life that we might walk together in this call to follow Jesus. It's to ask Jesus to shape our desires and our behaviors. To follow Christ is to experience a death to our pride, but Again, it is a sweet death because it is the gateway to abundant living. So what might it look like for you? 
to follow Jesus in such a way that your greatest aim is to bring glory to God. Well, that was Jesus' prayer. Father, glorify your name. What would it mean for you in your life to live so that the greatest aim of your life is to bring glory to God? Might it mean sacrificing your time to mentor a a younger man or woman or young person to invest your life for another in the context of walking with Christ and walking in His Word? Might it be sacrificing your time to do that with another, to actually be the body of Christ? Maybe it's sacrificing your comfort zone in the context of missions and evangelism. You know, for some, that that call to to missions might mean going to the other side of the world to to share the gospel of, of Jesus Christ with an unreached people group. But for many others, that call is to walk across the street, to invest your life with your neighbor, to invest the time to actually listen to them, to know them, to patiently pursue them and point them to Jesus. Sometimes sacrificing is the call to sacrifice for our family. To so radically alter our priorities so that we don't demand them to serve us, but we sacrifice by being present with them, by serving them, by listening and knowing them, by pursuing our family as we pursue Christ. Sometimes the way of the cross is the way of big radical shifts. Sometimes the way the cross shows up in the small shifts. Small shifts in priorities that are no less radical. I remember the first time I heard about Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and their missionary partners and their mission to the Alka Indians and in Ecuador, it was at a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert in 2002. And Chapman brought um, Nate Saint's son, Steve, along with a member of the Alka Indian tribe who had killed Steve's father, Nate. You see, Nate and uh, Steve and his mother later returned to visit and evangelize the Indian tribe that had killed their family members. And now, Steve had claimed Menkaya, the man who killed his father, and he claimed him now as his spiritual father. As they told the story that night concert they shared a quote from Jim Elliott that you have many of you have heard this he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. That night, I was taken aback by their radical obedience. I was taken aback by this radical shift that must have taken place for them to let go of pride, to let go of vengeance, to let go of comfort, and to go and glorify the name of the Father taken aback by that radical obedience, and I wondered what it might mean in my own life. Have you ever asked yourself that question? What would radical obedience look like in your own life? See, here was the problem that night in 2002. I, I, I had this wonderful story of God's faithfulness through a family that had given all to the Lord And I was motivated by it. But the motivation that we receive, even through these missionary stories, will only last so long. And so, what will do more than motivate? What will transform us? What will sustain us in a life of following Jesus? In a life of sacrifice? What will produce this desire in you and sustain it over a lifetime? I believe that's where Jesus is going in the rest of this passage. Verses 27 through 36. I believe he's showing us that it's his presence that sustains us. He speaks in terms of, uh, though he wouldn't use this word, we receive it as such. We speak of his relatableness through our sacrifice. He, he, He speaks of the victory sacrifice and he, he speaks of drawing us to himself well in the midst of sacrifice we want to know we're not alone right we, we want to know that somebody else is with us we want to know that we're seen we, we want to know that someone can relate because sacrifice is hard it, it is for us and it was for Jesus as well I want to be careful the comparison, because we've already tried to establish that Jesus' sacrifice was of one type and ours is of a far different type and, and scale. But it's still helpful for us to see that Jesus struggled. Verse 27, Jesus says, my soul is troubled, but trouble doesn't quite capture the anguish that he is communicating here. It is probably more appropriate to say Jesus would said that his soul was horrified. Because you see, Jesus knew that he was facing the wrath of God, and far more than us, Jesus knew what that meant. I'm going to point something out here. The the next phrase, and the next couple of sentences, and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but my ESV, there's a question mark at the end of that sentence. Punctuation is a, in in translations, they're an interpretive decision. They just are. Translators here interpreted this as a form of rhetorical question on the part of Jesus, as as if he was detached and he was sort of reasoning his way through this. But that doesn't quite capture the context of what he is 
saying in terms of his anguish. I don't think it's appropriate for this to be a question mark, but more of an exclamation point. In other words, Jesus is, is offering the plea of his heart. It is his heart's cry. Father, save me from this hour. He knows what is coming. This is a costly sacrifice for Jesus, but yet he's obedient. Yet he is submissive. And so along with this plea of his heart, he also prays, Father, glorify your name. Here's the point I'm trying to draw out. We, we heard earlier in the assurance of grace from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus is that high priest. Jesus is the great high priest who is relatable because he too suffered. He too was tempted, but more than being relatable, Jesus is the redeemer because he did all of that on a far greater, far grander scale, and yet did it without sin. He gave up control. He gave up comfort. He gave up pride. And in so doing, He became the perfect, spotless Lamb. So the Father answered His prayer for glory, and the Father did so audibly. Verse 28, Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The voice of God. And the voice of God is the voice of victory. Jesus makes clear to the people there that voice was for them. That voice is for us. There in that moment, the Father is affirming Him, but He's doing so in order to strengthen them. Father speaks a word of affirmation over Jesus, but he does so to strengthen and to sustain the people who were there with Jesus. They couldn't all understand, and so Jesus explained that this glory was a glory through judgment, and through this judgment, the ruler of the world would be cast out. He would no longer have power over the love of God. Because death had lost its sting. Jesus took that sting. And he took it for good. <laughs> the ruler of the world was cast out because he no longer had power. But the judge will come again to cast him out. To cast the ruler of this world out. Not to powerlessness, but to judgment and wrath for all eternity. all of this. He speaks all of this so that we might be sustained in our sacrifice because Jesus was victorious over sin and death. The crowd that day, they didn't understand all of that. They didn't understand much, to be quite frank, but they did get the implication of what Jesus was saying when he said he would be lifted up. They understood that he was saying that he would not remain, and they were confused by that. They thought that the Son of Man would stay because that's what the victor does. The victor remains in order to rule and to enjoy the spoil. 
None of this made sense to them, and if we're honest with ourselves, very little of it makes sense to us either. The gospel doesn't make sense, particularly by worldly standards, because it speaks of glory through death and suffering. So they ask, just who is this Son of Man? But just as before with the request of the Greeks, Jesus didn't respond as they had hoped. He didn't explain his true identity. He just is. Jesus just is the great I am. So rather than taking time to try and explain an explanation that he had been given throughout the whole gospel account, he draws them to himself by speaking of walking in the light while they still can. On one level, he's affirming that he is leaving soon because it is time. The hour is now here. It has come. But, but I happen to believe that on a deeper level, understanding that he's talking here to the Jews, that he is pointing to a time when the movement of building his church will move beyond the Jews and to the Gentiles. He's, he's pointing to a time where the true movement of the gospel will be among those very Greeks who came to see him. I started by talking about the story of our first child. We had, we had planned and prepared, but, but when the hour came, we... We focused with a laser focus on our coming child and the joy of welcoming him. We knew that there would be pain in the birth. We knew that there would be suffering, but we also knew that that pain would give way to joy. verse 36, Jesus seems to point to that joy. For the Jew and for the Greek alike, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. To become son implies something new. A new birth. Not from ordinary generation, but as John would, would write and the beginning of his gospel account, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. This is a supernatural birth to a supernatural adoption. Be called sons of the living God. The Greeks who came that day, they didn't get to see Jesus, at least in the moment. But through his sacrifice, they too would be able to enjoy the blessing of redemption, to be able to enjoy the adoption as sons. And here's the thing. Through his sacrifice, Jesus could look to that joy as well. I told you that the whole of Scripture pointed to this. Isaiah 53 is, is one of the, the songs of the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53, as clearly as anywhere in the Old Testament, points to this reality of this Redeemer who would come to pay the price for sin and to draw to himself his beloved offspring. Isaiah 53:10 captures this movement, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Those Greeks who came to see Jesus and those Jews who were there with him could become his offspring because Jesus was crushed for their transgression. Jesus saw the Greeks and he understood the shift in terms of his ministry sacrifice. It was a call to manifest his glory supremely on the cross. You and I, we see Jesus in it all. And in the vision of his glory, we're sustained. In the vision of his glory, we are transformed for a life of sacrifice. This is our call to live for the glory of God, to walk in the way of the cross. But beloved, do not miss this. The way of the cross is the way to joy. Because it is the way of Christ. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. I pray that we as a body would make that our prayer. And that we would own it in a life of following Jesus. Oh Lord, may it be so of us. Almighty God, your ways are higher than our ways. Make your way our way. Through the folly of the cross, transform our lives. That we might experience the joy of adoption in Christ, and that we might walk in our new identity. Do this for your glory, and do it for the growth of your kingdom. In Christ's name.